evening. <clears throat> Let's cultivate our motivation. So here we are once again, able to share the Dharma together. And we probably came here just because it's Friday evening and that's what you do. So kind of on automatic. So it's a good kind of automatic that we come to the Dharma automatically. But it would be even better if we remembered our motivation before we came and really thought, wow, I get to listen to the Buddha's teachings again. And what a rare opportunity this is in all of samsara. And so I want to go and be attentive, not like the upside-down pot that doesn't let anything in, or the leaky pot that can't retain it, or the dirty pot that listens with the wrong motivation. But to really... uh, prepare our mind and look forward to and uh, really think of the fortune we have before coming to the teachings. That will really uh, wake us up and help us to focus as well as to create our own good motivation. So think of your long-distance aim of being of the greatest benefit to all beings and generate that. So we've been discussing the second truth, the truth of the origin of dukkha. And within that, going through the six root afflictions. And so we've talked about attachment, anger, ignorance, arrogance, and doubt. And now we're on the sixth one, afflictive views. And that one, in turn, has five branches. The first one of that was view of a personal identity, which we talked about last week. And that one is the, uh, from the perspective of um, the upper tenant systems, that is that and ignorance together. Uh, They're like, um, you know, not... Totally twins, not identical twins, uh, fraternal twins, okay? So they're very good buddies, and uh, they're the source of our whole predicament in samsara. It's, yeah, the two of them together are the source of our whole predicament in samsara. So ignorance in general includes... um, from again, from the um, Majamaka view, grasping at uh, persons and grasping at phenomena as truly existent, and 
view of the personal identity refers to grasping our own I as truly existent. So it's much uh, narrower. It focuses its object as the mere I, not all the various phenomena in the universe. Okay, so we talked about that last week. And we talked about like the 20 wrong views that go along with it, which are very interesting to to think about and think, you know, well, how do I see the I? How do I see the self? Because yeah. uh, in samsara, in general, people never ask that question. You know, they just live the I. <laughs> the I is, you know, the, the uh, topic of all their energy. But very seldom do people actually ask, well, what is it? And how does it exist? Okay. So asking that question, you know, uh, then we can get into these 20 wrong views and then start to think, well, kind of may, each view kind of maybe, but no, it doesn't really work. And, uh, you know, it makes us think more and more exactly who the eye is. Yeah. And then the mind. So the mind is the eye that is the possessor or the owner of the aggregates. And everything else in the world that we crave. Yeah. We want to own everything. Or if not own it, we certainly want to control and manage it. Okay. Then the second of the afflictive views is view of the extreme. And that's where we left off last week. So that is on page 81. Have part way down. So the view of extremes is a corrupt intelligence that referring to the I and the mind apprehended by the view of a personal identity regards them in either an absolutist or nihilistic manner. Okay, so remember that it's an intelligence because it it. Uh, you know, it um, analyzes its object, you know, can discriminate its object and analyze it. And it is corrupt because it comes up with the wrong conclusion. Yeah, it's like way off. And so it refers to the I and mine that are apprehended by the view of the personality, um, personal identity. Okay, so uh, it's it's looking at the because the um, the eye and mind apprehended by the view of the personal identity would be the inherently existent eye and mind. Okay, and uh, regards them in either an absolutist or nihilistic manner. So absolutist is uh, when we grasp an inherent existence. It's sometimes called the view of superimposition because the mind is superimposing uh, inherent or true existence on a conventionally existent object. Okay? So sometimes it's called the extreme of superimposition. Super, super Sometimes the degree, the uh, extreme of permanence, because that I would have to be, if it were inherently existent, would have to be permanent. Okay. Sometimes it's called the view of existence, and here it doesn't mean just existence; it means inherent existence. Okay. So it's called um, view of the, uh, you know, the absolute absolutist view, yeah, or the view of absolutism, because it, it reifies the I. It makes it some kind of absolute 
concrete entity. Yeah. So it regards it in either an absolutist manner or a nihilistic manner. So a nihilistic manner is denying something that does exist. So there's different uh, kinds of nihilism. We can, uh, for example, deny that the I and the mind exist at all and say there's no person. Okay. When you do the, the uh, meditation looking for who the I is, Sometimes when you come up with nothing, then your mind just says, well, I just don't exist at all. Yeah. And sometimes it is uh, negating an I that, um, or, or nihilism, I should say in general, is, is negating that our actions have any kind of... Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, ethical dimension to them. Okay. So, uh, absolutism is superimposing a kind of existence that isn't there. Nihilism is denying a kind of existence that does exist. Okay. And those are the two extremes. You can see how they, you know, they look like they're, they're polar opposite. But what's really interesting is when you start to uh, examine how does the I exist, you find that both the absolutist view and the nihilist view, uh, they, they stem basically from the same error. Yeah. And that error, error is when you're analyzing to try and find the I or the self or the me, and you can't find it, yeah, or, or when you're analyzing f- first, okay? And then you, you uh, find something, okay? And you say, that's me. That's who I am. My body's me. My mental consciousness is me, yeah? Or my feelings are me, my thoughts are me. You come up with something that you can grasp onto that uh, who you think you are. Or you just come up with just this idea of some kind of I that exists on its own. Actually, uh, grasping one of the aggregates as me isn't the actual absolutist view. It's, it's more coming up with thinking that there's a real, true, independent me yeah, that doesn't depend on anything else. No causes and conditions, no parts, nothing like that. that. That's what the absolutist view is, not the thinking that it's one aggregate or another. I got confused for a minute. The nihilistic view says, you know, there's just no I whatsoever. The thing that they're based on is they're both have the assumption that there's a real, true, independent I. Okay? And if there's uh, there's no independent I, then the I doesn't exist at all. Okay, so then these people have this this either or in their mind. Either the I has got to be independent or it doesn't exist at all. Yeah. So then uh, when uh, they analyze and they wind up kind of in this mm area, then the absolutists say, well, there's a real I that's, that's there that's independent. Otherwise, because if there weren't a real I, then there wouldn't be an I at all, and then we're in real trouble. We can't deny the existence of the self. So there's got to be a real, inherently existent self. The nihilists come to that same point, yeah, and 
they say, too, oh, well, but if it's not reified, if there's not an independent eye, then the only conclusion is there's, there's no person. So both of the sides are based on this thing of there's got to be an independent person or else there's no person at all. Okay, so both of them uh, do not have any idea about a merely, designate, merely designated I. Yeah, both the absolutist and the nihilist cannot uh, um, fathom that the person exists by mere imputation. Okay, so one goes to one extreme and the other one goes to the other extreme, but they're both based on that same either or. Okay, is that clear? Okay, so based on grasping the I as inherently existent, the view of the extremes holds either one, an absolutist perspective that the I exists as an eternal, immutable soul or self that continues in future lives. Yeah. So this is how it's seen um, uh, in common with all the Buddhist views. You know, for the Prasangika, it would be an inherent existent self. So it based on rather grasping either that or a nihilistic outlook that the eye becomes totally non-existent after death, there being no continuum of the mere eye in future lives. Okay, so this, this view is really thinking of the eye, not just in this life, but as, you know, something that goes from life to life, because you've got to have something that carries the karma. So the absolutist view says, okay, it's an eternal, mutable soul or self that exists from one lifetime to the next, and that's what carries the karma. And the nihilists say, there's no person, there's no continuity. When you die, there's nothing. Yeah, you just cease to exist. Your body gets recycled. Your mind stream stops. You know, and there's no rebirth, so there's nothing that has to carry the karma. Okay, you can see uh, this view of the extremes is quite alive and well in our day and age, because in society we see many people who t who talk about an immutable soul that is the essence of who they are. And then you find other people, maybe some scientists or whatever, who, who just say, uh, you know, we are the body. There's only the material things that exist. And when we die, even when the body is dead, it ceases and there's nothing else that can possibly continue on to the next life. Yeah, because the mind is just an emergent property of the body, and when the body ceases, the mind does too. Okay, so you know these views that that are being talked about aren't some kind of uh, weird thing that only people in ivory towers or you know think about. These are views or that only people in ancient times thought about. These are views that people nowadays have. Yeah, And in your life, I don't know about you, but I've thought of the self, the I, in both of those ways. Yeah, I was raised that there's a soul, and I believed that for a while. Then I couldn't believe, you know, I had doubts about the whole idea of creation. So then I said, well, you know, after you die, there's nothing that exists. So they say between those two views, the nihilistic view is the worst, because the nihilistic view, if you think there's no future life, there's no I that continues, then that gives us license to uh, behave any way we want, because there's no karma 
So there's no effects of our karma. Okay, so the nihilistic view is considered the most harmful because at least if you believe in a, uh, a truly existent self or soul, you know, or you think that you, the I was created by some supreme being, that at least those religions give you some kind of ethical code to live by. And they encourage love and compassion and so on. So they say, you know, if you're going to go to two extremes, better to avoid both, but uh, really don't go to the nihilistic one. Yeah. Uh, and you can see why, you know, the people say, well, you know, when you die, there's nothing, so why not do what I want? Because it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. Because everything's going to go out of existence. There's no con continuum of anything. So in the end, it doesn't really matter. So do what you want. And that gives uh, rise to a very hedonistic view. Whereas if at least somebody believes in a soul, it's a wrong view. But they, they may think, oh, well, but, you know, I want my soul to, to go to heaven. I don't want it to go to hell. So I will keep good ethical conduct because of that. Yeah. View of the extremes prevents us from finding the middle way view free from the two extremes of absolutism and nihilism. Okay, so this is how it functions. It prevents us from finding the correct view. It also causes us to neglect creating the virtuous causes for higher rebirth and liberation, especially if we have the nihilistic view because we don't even believe in higher rebirth and liberation. So why, you know, exert ourselves to, to create good karma for things that, that don't e even exist? You know? and, and so the, the nihilistic or hedonistic people often say, uh, well, religion is the opiate of the people. You know, it just, it's a way to control uh, people. Yeah, you threaten them with hell and you reward them with heaven, and by that means you control them. Okay, So then they say, well, we're not going to do that because that's all corrupt. Uh, and so, but then people are, are left with very little, you know, in terms of uh, ethical guidance. And, you know, people say, well, I do what is right. You know, what about just people who do what's right because it's right? Yes, there are those people, and they may not have any kind of religion or whatever, but they have some kind of moral conscience, you know, and that's fantastic. But if we look around, let alone the people who don't believe anything, how do the people who believe in God and heaven and hell act? Do they keep good ethical conduct? A few of them do. Our friends, the Catholic sisters, are incredible people. But look at everybody else we read about in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah? So, yeah, difficult. Okay, so the absolutist view is also called the view of existence, which means inherent existence. Eternalism, okay? Eternalism because you're thinking of a person that is permanent and eternal and lasts forever. What is our footnote here? Okay, so eternalism in Buddhist philosophy is not the same as the eternalism that is a philosophy of time. So I don't know what that eternalism is, but it's not this one. <laughs> okay, so it's also called the view of superimposition, the view of permanence, because it projects a false mode of existence on the person. 
The nihilistic view is called the view of non-existence, okay, the view of annihilation, or the view of deprecation, because it denies the continuity of the self that actually does exist. Okay. So in doing so, the nihilistic view negates future rebirth as well as the possibility of liberation and awakening. Yeah, so then, you, you know, why follow the path if there's no result? So the Buddha spoke of this view, saying its holders think, I may not be, I may, it may not be for me. I shall not be. It will not be for me. Okay? So I may not be, I may not exist in my next life. It may not be for me, any kind of karma ripening, result coming, probably not. I shall not be, so there's no me to start with. And it will not be for me, so there's no I that will experience the result. Yeah. So this kind of way of thinking. Yeah. And we can see uh, also in society how destructive the nihilistic view is because so many people who suicide have that view, you know, and they just feel the li- this life is, is, you know, it's not worth anything, it's just suffering, there's no future life, there's nothing, there, there's no hope for anything, so, you know might as well die. Which is very, very sad from a Buddhist viewpoint. One of the inmates that I I correspond with, um, he told me that at some point uh, when he was incarcerated, he was quite nihilistic and very depressed. Yeah, very depressed. My life is worthless. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no future life, so why should I try and do anything? You know, just dying will put an end to my suffering. And so we thought to suicide. And then he told me when he thought, because uh, he had just started learning Buddhism, and then when he thought that, oh, wait a minute, I might be reborn then he decided not to kill himself because he realized that even if you kill yourself, you're not stopping your dukkha. Yeah, because there's a continuity into the next life and you're born again and, you know, the dukkha's not going to, your suffering's not going to go away like that. Uh, And so he really began to practice quite well. Mm -hmm. I think that's an amazing kind of transformation to happen to somebody who's incarcerated. Yeah. By identifying the view of extremes as erroneous, the Buddha clarified that although there is no inherently existent person a conventionally existent person, the mere I that is reborn and can attain liberation, exists. Okay, so such an I does exist. When we talk of the middle way, free from the two extremes, sometimes we get the thing, the imagination, that Uh, absolutism is here and nihilism is here, you put them together, cut them in half so that they're averaged, and that's the middle way view. Okay, so it's half nihilistic and half eternalistic, so it's the middle way view. No, okay, the middle way view is not halfway between those two. It's completely apart and separate, okay? It's not, uh, you know, half and half. Because it, it denies um, both of the, those wrong views. You know, 
It says, yes, there's an I that exists, so it contradicts nihilism, and it says, but that I is not inherently existent, so it contradicts uh, absolutism. And then it sets forth the I as a dependent arising, and the aggregates and everything else as a dependent arising, as something that is uh, mere name. Okay? And so that mere I that exists by being merely designated that you cannot find when you search for, that's the one that gets reborn and attains awakening. But our mind says, wait a minute, if there's something that goes from this life to that life, it should be something that I can locate. Otherwise, what in the world can go from one life to the other? It's got to be something. Okay. So is it is it like, you know, a bulletin board and all the karma sticks to it? And this bulletin board that is me goes from one life to the next with all the karma? Is that what it's like? You know, there's got to be something that doesn't change, that is findable when I look for it. Because if I can't find it, how do I know it's there? And if it exists by mere designation, then like, what's that? That's just airy-fairy. There's nothing there. So what can carry the karma? Okay? So that's the argument that, that people put forth. Yeah? On the other hand, the middle the people with the middle way view say, well, but if you believe in nihilism, there's nothing that carries the karma, so that's not going to be it. And if you believe in eternalism and you think that there's a permanent I, well, something that is permanent and does not mute, uh, is immutable, that cannot go from one lifetime to the next because that involves change. And you're telling me that the I doesn't change at all. So, you know, the Madhyamaka, the middle way people, refute both the absolutist and the nihilist people. But, you know, when you listen to the views of the absolutists, and, you know, when you're in that mood, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. And when you're in the mood of nihilism, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you see that in your mind? Yeah. And can you see how we flip from one to the other? We're so crazy. Okay. I'm wondering if you would just summarize the difference between the view of the personal I, or the personal self, and the absolutist view of the view of extremes. Because in some way they sound like the same. To view a personal I is apprehending an inherently existent I in yeah. one's own continuum. And the absolutist view is also looking at that inherently existent I and saying it's it's permanent. It seems like... What? Say that again? So the view of extreme of absolutism is looking at the I or mind that's apprehended by the view of the personal identity the inherently existent I, and holding it to be permanent or eternal. Mm-hmm. So how is that different from the view of the personal I? I would think that the view of the personal I does that already. The, the view of the personal I does, okay, but it, okay, but this is the view of the extremes. So it's holding... It's referring to the I and mine apprehended by the view of the personal identity and regards them in either an absolutist or nihilistic manner. Okay? If, if it views it in an absolutist manner, how is that different from the view of the personal I? Um, it's not, but 
you know, in that sense. But it's when you it's kind of affirming what the view of of the personal identity grasps at. And it's saying, yes, that is true, that is a good view. Yeah, that's as much as I can make out. Yeah? Kind of this question, too, but where isn't the view of the personal identity as innate and the rest of these are not? Is that true? The, the personal view of the, uh, of the personal identity is innate. Regarding the rest of them, um, let's see what we come to, because I remember when putting this together, there was a lot of discussion. Uh-huh about this and what is, you know, uh, regarding the other four, what is innate, what isn't. I know that, uh, yeah, I think we may come to that, okay? The view of rules and practices, that one is definitely only artificial or uh, acquired. Okay, but let's see what we come to, okay? Yeah, it could be that, that, but then still, uh, the view of the personal identity has acquired an innate. Yeah. Okay, so then the third view is a view holding erroneous views as supreme. So you not only have wrong views, and actually all these others, although they're all called Afflicted views, they're all basically wrong views, too, even though wrong views is one of the five. Okay, so this one, view holding the erroneous view as supreme, is you have a wrong view and you say, it's fantastic, this is the right view. Okay, so the view holding wrong views as supreme is a corrupt intelligence that regards the View of a personal identity, the first one. View of extremes, the second one. Or wrong views, the fifth one. As correct and supreme views. There being no higher views. Okay. So this, in a way, is somehow related to that kind of arrogance that thinks our wrong views are good views. It's not the same, but you can see, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, companions. So the view holding erroneous views as supreme also views our own five aggregates as supreme, thinking there is no better body, feelings, and so forth. Okay. So you can see it is related to, you know, what I, what's I and mine is better, and the, view, the views of I and mine are the best. We ordinary beings easily become attached to our views, and the view holding wrong views as supreme functions to increase our attachment to erroneous views, so that we arrogantly tout our wrong views as right ones. And we meet these people sometimes, you know? You can meet them and, and, you know, they are sure and they are spouting some, you know, up in Mars philosophy that may boil down to absolutism or nihilism. Very often they, they boil down to those two. And then they tout their wrong views as right ones. They accumulate a group of followers. And that is disastrous because that person who does that creates a lot of negative karma. And the people that follow that person are... Uh, what gets imprinted in their mind again and again is the wrong view. Yeah. And then if somebody tries to present the right view, 
they say, oh, that's wrong, I don't believe that. Yeah? Or they have such loyalty for their teacher that they won't even you know, listen to any other views. Nagarjuna talks about this, remember? Yeah, in, in Precious Garland. That book, The Precious Garland, is so amazing. Yeah, I, it's just an incredible book. Okay. So we ordinary beings easily become attached to our views. You know, I believe I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I want to, I believe, you know, it's not the big lie, it's the big, uh, big, uh, Steel, yeah, I just we get so attached to our views. Okay, and the view holding wrong views as supreme uh, as supreme functions to increase our attachment to those erroneous views. So we arrogantly tout our wrong views as right ones. Holding wrong views as supreme strongly holds to wrong views. Okay, and serves as the basis for generating wrong views in this and future lives. Okay, so if you have wrong views this life and you view them as supreme, yeah, you're setting yourself up for having wrong views in future lives. It makes our mind very narrow and decreases our intelligence. And it makes us, yeah, very narrow and stubborn. And stubborn without any good reason. Or with a bunch of bad reasons. (laughs) Okay. While wrong views can be abandoned comparatively easily, When we hold them as supreme, they become deeply entrenched in our mind and thus more difficult to overcome. The four distorted conceptions regarding true dukkha correspond with the first three afflictive views. Okay, so viewing that which lacks a self as having one is the view of a personal identity. Viewing the impermanent as permanent is the absolutist or eternalistic view. Viewing the the foul body as clean and viewing what is in nature unsatisfactory as pleasurable are the view holding erroneous views as supreme. So they love making correlations between these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I hold that, you know, chocolate is pleasurable inherently. <laughs> you know, don't try and change my mind. So, upholding wrong views is supreme. Yeah. So, I'm struggling a little bit with this one in terms of imagining someone who follows a religion that believes in a soul. It's hard for me to imagine that person holding that view, that absolutist view, without holding that view as extreme. It, does that make sense? Like yeah, yeah. It, in my mind, it would almost always be the case yeah, that I mean, someone holds their wrong views as supreme. Um, I, yes, I would think so. Yeah. And, um, you know, what you see here is you have one afflictive view that creates another afflictive view. Yeah. You, you hold, uh, you know, that there's a permanent soul. And then, of course, yes, my view is supreme because I wouldn't believe anything wrong. <laughs> right? And because my teacher said so, and they promised that if I believe like this, I will make a lot of money and have a happy life. Yeah, prosperity gospel. Okay. So I know lots of people who kind of hold this idea of a soul, but don't have a really strong conviction 
Like they they wouldn't go so far as to like fight to the death for it. It's just the way they've always thought. They've never thought about it very much. So so it, it, I don't think it necessarily follows that that they they may hold it very tightly, but just because they don't fight to the death for it doesn't mean that they don't hold it tightly. Yes, but what I'm saying, maybe maybe this isn't true, but what I'm saying is that I don't think it necessarily means that they would also hold it as supreme. They're just lazy about what they, they never thought much about what they learned, and that's the end of it. You think? I don't know. Okay. You have to ask those people what they think. I have no idea. <laughs> okay, then the fourth one is view of rules and practices. So the view holding bad rules and practices as supreme is another corrupt intelligence that believes purification of mental defilements is possible by ascetic practice and inferior ethical codes that are inspired by erroneous views. Okay, so for example, um, you know, the people who do animal uh, sacrifice and think that by sacrificing animals, it, this is a wrong view, but it's also a view of rules and practices. You know, they think that that will uh, prevent bad things to ha from happening, or it will. Uh, you know, the, uh, there used to be in in ancient India, if you walk across fire. You know, it can bring liberation. If you drum, jump on a tide, high, tide, trident and this middle spoke comes out your crown, then you will achieve liberation. So, you know, it has uh, a set of wrong ethics, okay? And it so it has wrong precepts, you know, like the Buddha had, uh, well, like Angulimala's teacher who told him to go out and kill a thousand people and bring back a, a necklace made of their, their finger bones, okay? So he was definitely holding wrong rules as supreme, okay? That this was a precept that you had to do on wrong practices as supreme. So... Um, you know, I mean, you, you can look what, what people do. Uh, the, it's usually explained in more of a Indian context, you know, like, um, well, maybe it'll come. Yeah, it comes and it describes some of them here. Okay. So this uh, view functions uh, to cause us to engage in useless actions that make us exhausted but bring no spiritual benefit, okay? Like engaging in ascetic practices, which, again, is very popular uh, in some religions. And certainly in India, the whole idea was, uh, and to some extent in Catholicism, if you torment the body, that's how you will overcome attachment to the body. So, you know, it... it encourages, um, you know, ascetic practices and, yeah, doing all sorts of things, sitting in, in icy cold water, beating yourself, self-flagellation or, uh, you know, whatever, these kinds of things. Um, but it doesn't bring any spiritual benefit. Okay, so the view of rules and practices thinks that what are, what are not causes for higher rebirth and liberation are causes for them, and what is not the path to liberation is the path. Okay, under its influence, people engage in non-virtue, believing it to be virtue. And they follow a path that they believe will lead to liberation that leads instead to unfortunate rebirths. Examples of this erroneous view include thinking that killing in the name of one's religion 
will bring rebirth in a heavenly realm. Many people have that view nowadays, don't they? If you kill the defender religion, if you kill all the heathens and non-believers, that is a virtuous action. Okay? Um, or that animal sacrifice pleases the god, the gods, and brings good fortune. Every autumn in Nepal, they do a huge animal sacrifice. Huge. And it's, it's, it's just this horrible feeling because they kill big animals and small animals and, yeah. And they think it, it you know, will, is the cause for good fortune. Yeah. You offer their, the animal lives to the, to the gods. Yeah. But what kind of god is it who would like killing? You know, okay. in yeah, in in, uh, in Asia too, they do this. Yeah, and some of the ancestor worship practices. Yeah, you you make animal sacrifices and give give it to the gods. Yeah, or no, to the, your ancestors. Yeah, to your ancestors. When I first went to Singapore. It was in the seventh month, and I had no idea what the seventh lunar month meant, you know, in Singapore. And to people who uh, were nominally Buddhist but didn't know much about Buddhists, they were practicing a form of ancestor worship. And, and many of the Buddhist temples went along with this because... That way people came to the temple and maybe they got some Buddhism mixed in with their other kind of beliefs. But I got there and I was staying in a temple and I went in to pay my respects to the Buddha and the, the hall was filled with tables like you were having a luncheon, you know, and chairs. And who was seated, seated in the chairs um, but effigies, the size of human beings, and what was placed in front of them were meals that their relatives bought, brought to offer to their deceased ancestors. Um, and it was, it was how to show respect and love and care for your ancestors. The idea was also that they could take the food with them or take the essence of the food with them and store it for a while and eat it. Uh, but, at, you know, so they took the essence, but actually the people who offered the food wound up eating it. So they usually made it quite tasty. And, <laughs> yeah. And then there were, um, so I was really shocked, you know, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, then I learned, oh, this is a practice of ancestor worship. But then what, what the Buddhists did in China is, I think it was Shariputra, uh, one, one of the arhats, um, said, no, instead of doing like this for your ancestors, uh, you should uh, create merit and dedicate for them. Okay. So then they were trying to get the Buddhists to try and do that rather than these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so those kinds of things. Um, I don't know. I mean, in our culture, we have all sorts of ideas, too, about what it, what is good and, yeah, you know, you should try and convert as many people as possible. And if that means you know, impinging on their time, uh, even though they're not interested, still you're creating virtue by trying to create, convert them. There's definitely that view here. Okay. Other instances are believing that the perfect performance of a ritual alone, without any mental transformation, 
is the path to liberation. So this was very much a Brahmanist thing, that you have to perform the ritual perfectly. You have to say all the syllables correctly. You have to do all the physical movements correctly, you know, all this kind of stuff, okay? You can find in Buddhism certain hints of these kind of Indian Brahminical things, yeah? When we're told about, you know, how to repeat something, how to say something at the end of pujas, how we apologize for doing the puja incorrectly, um, yeah, sometimes in Tantra, the way it, it, it's very specific about how you have to set something up or how you decorate it or whatever. Do you want to add something? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. In Kriya Tantra, there's a lot of uh, rituals, washing, you know, washing rituals and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at it from the outside, it looks like Tantra has a lot of this stuff. I mean, the commotion over long life pills that goes on after a long life empowerment. People are crazy grabbing, stepping over each other to get these long life pills, as if eating this pill will give you a long life. The eating the pill alone will give you a long life. It has nothing to do with your mind getting transformed or thinking of virtue and practicing virtue and and that kind of thing. It's just that pill, that substance, I got to get it. You know, and the same thing with cords, you know, the, you know, these cords, wow, when they're handed out, you know, the grabbing that goes on. And I remember one Rinpoche said, you know, you people, uh, what's it he said? Um, you think this cord is going to protect you, but actually you have to protect it because otherwise it gets dirty and it breaks everything. So what are you thinking? How are you thinking that this piece of string is going to protect you? Okay. But, uh, you know, in the Tibetan army, they all wore things, you know, to scare away bullets and, and stuff like that. So, you know, and initiations, holy water, my goodness, you know. So, you know, what the Hindus do, thinking that drinking water from the Ganges or bathing in the Ganges is going to purify your negativities. How is that different than the Buddhists, you know, running around? I want some blessed water. You know, get out of my way. Um Huh? On the Catholics too? Yeah. Oh yeah, there's the baptism, lots of holy water there too. So, you know, how are these things different? It it has to do with your mental state. And if your mental state is thinking that that substance alone is going to purify my mind or protect me, and I don't have to do anything, then that is... I would say pretty similar to this, yeah. Whereas if you, you know, know how to think, then your thought process can can make that physical whatever it is into something that transforms your mind. Okay, that negativities can be purified by bathing in or drinking holy water. Oh, wait a minute. Tibetans do that. Not the bathing part, but the drinking part. Yeah. So what's the difference? Yeah. And when we drink the holy water, you know, during initiations or whatever, is our mind paying attention to what our mind is doing 
Or are we looking at the external object as doing the spiritual work? That attachment is abandoned by extreme asceticism, such as fasting for days on end, walking through fire, or lying on a bed of nails. Oh, that last one sounds great. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And you think that by, you know, subjecting the body to pain that you will conquer attachment to the body. But this is the big thing that the Buddha realized after he went to do ascetic practices for a year, is that it doesn't work. That that isn't the way to do it. Although these people aspire for liberation, their aspiration remains unfilled. So that is really sad because people may put a lot of energy into doing things that really does not bring the spiritual benefit that they think it does. I I remember reading Karen Armstrong's book many years ago. Um, She was a British woman, I think, who entered an Episcopalian uh, nunnery, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, but and Episcopalian is quite similar to Catholicism, except you can get divorced and remarry thanks to Henry VIII. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's why the the church split. Yeah, can you imagine that? He he threw a whole country into disarray just so he could, you know, get rid of one life wife and marry another and have it be, you know, approved of. And, uh, you know, and what he did to all these other people that then started so many wars between the Scots who were Catholics and the British who were, uh, you know, Prada, who were Episcopalian and, you know, my goodness. Okay, so, um, yeah, something to be careful of. These kind of views. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, you know, if you go to New Age workshops, you'll probably find these kinds of things too. Or crystals. Or crystals, you know, stones have certain Oh, yeah. Crystals and stones. Yeah. yeah. Whether they say, I don't know if those things are are just saying, you know, that they'll bring good luck or if they really say that you will advance spiritually before, you know, because of them. Because there might be some difference there. Mm-hmm. I think there are many different permutations of that, but way back when, when I was dabbling in that stuff, the, the particular kind of stones were part of a spiritual ritual practice for clarity, for purification, for transcendence, and for moving on to some different levels mm. of vibration. So they were they were definitely part of a spiritual ritual of, of some mm. sort. Mm. Yeah. Okay, then the fifth one, wrong views. Okay. So wrong views are a corrupt intelligence that denies the existence of something necessary to attain awakening that exists. Okay? So some element that you need that is necessary to attaining liberation or awakening that actually exists, you deny its existence. Okay? So this includes... The denial of causes, saying that constructive and destructive actions don't exist. So, the, you know, not the not just not believing in karma, but actually refuting the law of karma and its effects. Denial of effects, believing that the results of constructive and destructive actions don't exist. Denial of functionality, believing that past and future lives are non-existent. And denial of phenomena, asserting liberation, awakening, or the three jewels are non-existent. Okay. 
So these wrong views center particularly on denying the existence of something that exists. And that something has to be uh, something that's important for you to uh, have confidence in in order to make progress on the path. So these views are so damaging because when people hold them, they easily deny ethical responsibility for their actions and justify engaging in many destructive actions. Okay, don't believe in karma, so you do what you want. There's no ethical responsibility. Okay, and there's no result that's going to come from my actions. So, yeah. Wrong views function to harm us because they serve as a basis for engaging in non-virtue, cause us not to engage in virtue, so to be quite, uh, you know, like you learn what is a good thing to practice and then you don't believe it. You say, no, that doesn't work. And uh, wrong views sever our roots of virtue. So remember, one of the ways to destroy our virtue or to inhibit it from uh, ripening, anger, and wrong views. Mm. Adhering to wrong views cuts our opportunity to attain awakening. Mm. 